Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put a kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of the Carmen Murray Show. Super excited about today. I am actually interviewing a gentleman by the name of Phil Barden, and he has written a book, Decoded. Now, if you are a marketing geek like myself, and also a little bit of a marketing activist, you would thoroughly enjoy this book. Now, I call this my Bible. I keep it next to me all the time. And therefore, I thought it would be better for me to bring the man himself to you. And let's have some robust conversations about the marketing world. And um, I want to read something to you. So Patrick Barwise um, from the London Business School said something very profound. He said, this is a very good book that does three difficult things. It pulls together a lot of recent academic evidence on consumer behavior from both neuroscience and behavioral economics. It consistently relates this evidence to practical marketing issues illustrated with real world examples. Now, it's a very, very easy read. The only difference I would say is our world has changed significantly. So Phil, without further ado, I would like for you to please introduce yourself to our audience without me diminishing all the amazing things that you've achieved. Thanks, Carmen. It's a pleasure to uh, to join you. So uh, I spent 25 years in client-side marketing, mostly with Unilever, but also Diageo and T-Mobile. After that time, I kind of felt probably a bit arrogantly that I, I knew it all. I knew why and how brands worked, how advertising worked or didn't and um, felt pretty pretty confident that I'd reached a level in my career where um, yeah, I could write strategy, et cetera, et cetera. But I got a, a rude awakening when I commissioned a lot of research throughout Europe that didn't yield the sort of results that were even intuitively plausible. And um, I was worried because I'd committed a lot of personal equity to this research. And someone introduced me to a couple of guys um, who they said, look, these are interesting guys, you should talk to them. They've got a very different angle on the commercial world. So I met them in Germany. One is a neuroscientist and the other is a cognitive psychologist. And I, I tested them. I gave them a few what I thought were tricky questions. I showed them some advertising, showed them the results, quizzed them. And they were able to just answer me there and then with um, answers that I found fascinating and which felt right. And I said to them, this is really interesting. How do you guys know all this stuff? And they looked at me pretty dumbfounded and said, but but how come you don't know this stuff? <laughs> because we're using, we're using constructs that everyone in the fields of neuropsychology know. We're using studies that have been peer reviewed and published. How come you in the commercial world don't understand this? Because this is basic stuff, right? Marketing fundamentally is about behavior change 
We want people to choose our brand, buy more of it, become advocates, share stuff, whatever it might be. That's about behavior. And these guys had spent decades working in human behavior through various fields, whether it was neuroscience, cognitive psychology, social, evolutionary psychology, or, or behavioral economics. And that was a real eye-opener for me. And, and I commissioned them to work on the, the relaunch of T-Mobile in Europe, um, which was an outstanding success thanks to their insights and their approaches. Uh, the most famous example of that was in the UK. We had a TV ad which showed a flash mob dance happening at London's Liverpool Street Station. You know, it starts off with people just walking across the platform, then some music plays. And over the course of the next 60 seconds, the whole concourse is filled with people doing synchronized dance. And that one ad, uh, even though it didn't show any product or, or any price or promotion or really any proposition as such, that one ad grew sales by 49 percent. Wow. And yeah, double footfall into T-Mobile stores within 48 hours. And we were just completely astonished. It then tripled brand consideration, uh, halved customer churn. And uh, and I said to these guys, the whole company is amazed by this. This is incredible. And again, they looked quite bemused and said, well, why are you surprised? Because we, we coded into that ad motivators of behavior. That's what we do. And, and why are you surprised that it worked? So... Um, that just captivated me. Uh, and I thought the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is the essence of marketing. Uh, and they gave me some stuff to read, the sort of popular psychology, how we decide and um, predictably irrational. And, and the more I read, the more I, I um, was fascinated by it. And in the end, I said I approached them and said, listen, would you be interested in having a UK office? Uh, and uh, and I quit my client side career to set Decode up in the UK, and that was about 11 years ago now. And we've been growing organically since then. We've now got an office in the US, and we work with some of the world's biggest um, CPG companies as well as, uh, as service businesses. And and of course, along the way, the whole field of behavioral science and behavioral economics has exploded. There are there are now dozens of uh, college and university courses available. It's passed into public policy in various governments, as well as the commercial world. So it's a really exciting place to be. 100%. And I have to add to that is I, I believe neuroscience and behavioral economics has been so important in marketing. And I, I think, I'm, how am I going to say this without sounding too robust is I almost feel like marketing should be a doctorate. Like you should be at that level being a marketer these days. I recently started my postgraduate diploma in management practice with Henley Business School. And I have to tell you, we are starting to dive into psychology, the Carl Jung, the iceberg model from Sigmund Freud, and we're actually diving into the mental models, the worldviews. And you look at these things and you go, oh my word. The way that I've been doing marketing and how I have made decisions in my career and also in playing in the agility economy now that we post-COVID world, how you make decisions and show up in the world is so different when you start understanding these models and start being conscious, especially with cited reviews and reading people's um, theses. And it's, it's a very, very different world. Yeah, it is. And I think what's happened over the past 
couple of decades as well. I mean, marketing's always been accused of being like the dog that barks at every passing car. You know, we, we always want the link. Yeah, yeah, marketing, right. <laughs> we want the latest thing. We, uh, you know, the, the new shiny object, the new shiny platform or, or tech space, whatever it might be, we go after. And I think in doing so, we miss and lose the fundamentals because what has driven human beings in the last 20 years is the same as driven them in the last 2000 mm. and more years you know we are we we are driven to achieve the same goals as our grandparents and our ancestors the channels that we use the tech that we use of course those change but but basic human nature doesn't change and and yet you hear lots of myths banded around that become received wisdom and one of my favorites is um when people stand up at conferences and say human attention span is now less than that of a goldfish and uh, that's complete rubbish it it's it, it hasn't changed uh, in the last 20 years with the advent of digital nor will it change in the next few thousand years and actually there's a guy who i follow on twitter faris yakov he's a, a planner he was skeptical enough to look at the source of this and and so he 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 dug deep he he found that the source of this was a microsoft report called attention spans which sounds plausible right it's mm. microsoft and it's about attention that report cited its source as something called the statistic brain research company chart so he then went to the statistic brain research company and said where did you get this information and they said, oh, we got it from the building information modeling and construction management software manual. What? That I sounds mean, important. What, <laughs> right? What's that got to do with attention? So he then went to the building information management company that published this software manual and said, where did you get this information from? And they cited the US Library of Medicine and something called the National Center for Biotechnology Information. So he went to both of those places and said, can you point me to the research or the studies that prove this a shorter attention span? Both of those ultimate sources denied any knowledge of any research that supports that claim. That is so interesting. Right? Yet somehow it had morphed into fact. And, and you, you can be sure that, you know, listeners of, of this podcast, We'll have heard that somewhere mm. and we'll be taking it as, oh, that means we need shorter and shorter stuff. We've got to grab attention, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you've got things like six second pre-roll ads on on YouTube. Yes, you need to craft your creative and your content differently to account for six seconds. But it doesn't mean that our attention spans have got shorter. Similarly, I hear... You know, I see you, you go to a conference, you mentioned the iceberg model and, and, you know, that always pops up and the speaker normally accompanies it with with something like 95% of decisions are driven by emotion. Well, I, I happen to be sat next to a professor of neuroscience at a conference when the speaker uh, made exactly that claim. And the professor turned to me and whispered, that's complete and utter rubbish and i thought oh that's interesting coming from a professor of neuroscience perhaps she knows something the speaker doesn't so i quizzed her about it and she said oh it's just you know the usual garbage trotted out there's no source of, of that data and by the way no scientist would ever put a figure on it because it's impossible to measure 
But I I then did some digging. I went to Google Scholar mm-hmm. to try and find a source of this. And the closest I got was um, a publication by Professor Gerald Zoltman from Harvard. But he didn't actually say it. What he said was 95% of thinking takes place in our unconscious minds, which is a very different phrase to 95% of decisions are driven by emotion. But somehow it's got conflated. Mm. And and that's one of the problems in this area. There's a lot of uh, crap talked uh, and a lot of snake oil still going around. And it, it really does pay to be... Uh, healthily skeptical yeah. and and to listen listen to the academics and the scientists because they're the guys who read the peer-reviewed papers mm. you know don't don't listen to people who grab a headline and then and then pass it off as fact I totally agree with that I think that there's a lot of it's almost like picking up breadcrumbs and trying to create a loaf of bread out of it and a lot of marketers I do believe have good intentions but you know they've they've learned this behavior or the, these fundamentals maybe in old system in an old way of doing marketing um, we have to recognize mm-hmm. that marketing has evolved it will never change but it has evolved I would for example do social listening watching real-time live consumer behavior audience behavior I would go through probably 60 to 100,000 messages live and from that from the conversations that's happening you immediately start seeing the direction where people are going and where their mindsets are but a week from now that's completely changed so you also need to be in a position not to over and and we might have a, a, a you know a disagree on this but it is also very important to move with 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 the conversations. It's not just about how you want to sell, but how people want to buy. And as people are becoming more woke and they they're having these online conversations and you can actually see what's happening, the ability to act is what really brings value. Sometimes we need to fly while we're building a plane. I think that a lot of people want to go out to market and be perfect, but if we overthink things, um, it almost becomes like we don't have practical bones in our bodies. Yeah, I'd agree with you to an extent, but I would always caveat that the people you are listening to are only representative of the people who comment on social media. And if you look at a population, uh, I think in the UK, about 10% of the total population use Twitter right or have a twitter account mm. of those some will comment but you need to guard against the the tail wagging the dog right and we 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 had a client recently who wanted to change their brand name the reason why they were going to change their brand name was because five people on social media had complained that it was politically incorrect and they'd had two phone calls into a care line. That's hardly a sample. Well, exactly. This yeah. is a brand that's been around for 50 or 60 years. It's the brand leader. And now the company has strategically decided that it is the right thing to do from a, a moral point of view to change the name. Okay, that's fine. But be careful, right? Don't don't let the tail wag the dog. If there are five people who've commented on Twitter, mm. that's only five people who've commented on Twitter. Mm. And and do risk sometimes you need to be careful that you're not going to alienate the vast bulk of your business. 
I also believe Twitter is a bit of a white space. I believe doing social listening from there is also, you know, you have to take it with a pinch of salt and therefore validating it through various sources online is so important. You know, I'm all about data, data, and God we trust, the rest must bring data. If I don't have data, I don't make decisions. And and Amazon, Jeff Bezos has that on every single boardroom door. And I think the, the important thing also is maybe to dive into your book because something that really struck me And the first time reading it was, and this was, by the way, before I started studying, and um, I got introduced to the system one, system two thinking, please don't uh, shoot me (laughs) on the other side. (laughs) But how you explained it was so beautifully put. Like I had a vegan challenge many, many, many uh, months ago. One of my friends challenged me to be a vegan for seven days. And I went and you're not allowed to have any form of dairy whatsoever. The first two days, I make my first cup of coffee, make my coffee. I wasn't even thinking. I was opening the door. I was putting the milk in my coffee. But the rest of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm eating correctly. I'm so conscious and aware of what I'm eating. And my one friend who is um, vegetarian, she looks at me and she goes, Carmen, you do know that you're not allowed to have milk in your coffee. And that's in the moment I realized I'm on autopilot because I'm so used to mm. doing that. And, and, and I've been doing it my whole entire life since I've been a little girl. And you talk about yeah. this whole thing about the input and how that impacts your decision-making, system one and system two thinking. Can you maybe give us a little bit more depth about informed decision-making and how important this data is? Uh, yeah, I mean, for people who are not familiar with system one, system two, just very quickly, this is a... A, a model for understanding different sets of mental processes in the brain. System one is characterized by being always on, never sleeping, and working incredibly quickly with very almost unlimited bandwidth. It has evolved to help us survive on the planet because we're bombarded by stimuli of various form, and those stimuli could be threatening to us, literally to our survival. Um, or they could be rewarding to us. So things that we want to exhibit approach behavior towards rather than avoid behavior. So we have evolved uh, a set of mental processes that can deal with this incredibly quickly and they work spontaneously and intuitively and automatically using a vast reservoir of neural networks and associations that we've built over time. So we're matching patterns all the time. The brain is in a constant state of prediction so what is the stimuli coming in we're we're metaphorically asking the questions what is it what does it represent what's in it for me that's going on continuously system two in contrast uh, is is a reflective system rather than a reflexive system so it's actually what we think about as thinking it's much more considered it's slower it has limited bandwidth uh, but it acts as a control mechanism. So up, up to the age of seven, which incidentally the French have called large du raison for, for centuries, for very good reason before they knew the neuroscience. It's when kids turn from pure cars without brakes or unguided missiles, they start to become a little bit more controlled and reflective. And that continues to evolve until our uh, early adulthood when you know we don't take risks that we would have done as a child it's because we have this control system and it it acts as a as a like a gatekeeper on what we self-report and what we how we behave what we say and what we do 
And uh, that's very interesting to understand how brands work and how advertisements work, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of people conflate this with emotional and rational, and that, that's not correct. The correct way of understanding system one and system two is the distinction between automatic processes and controlled processes. So, you know, if I'm walking around, I don't have to think about it because I've learned it, right? Mm -hmm. I learned it at a certain age and now it just happens automatically or driving the same same way. When you first start to do that, it's a very cognitively intense, effortful process. But as you become a master of it, you can you can drive from A to B without even realizing you've got there. You're thinking about something else. Or certainly when you're walking, you don't need to reflect on the motion and the, what's going on in your motor cortex at that point in time. That, so they're system one activities, but you, know, you wouldn't call walking emotional. Uh, similarly, you can ask someone what they like about an advert. That's, that's a, an affective process. You know, people explain what they like about an advert, talking about emotion, but that's a system two process. It's a reflection on uh, on a piece of advertisement uh, on advertising so it, it's a useful construct to understand particularly that the system one dominates our behavior and dominates our decision making and you can't switch it off you know as soon as we see an ad a pack uh, uh, whatever it might be uh, a message on social media a, a pr stunt or event a promotion whatever it might be it is process by system one first and, and intuitively. And we sometimes jump to quick, snap, fast, frugal decisions because it costs less energy for the brain. System two is very energy intensive and, and consumes a lot of energy and, and the brain knows it needs energy to survive. So it does everything it can to conserve energy. So that's why when you talk about no brainer decisions, that is quite literally system one because you've you've kind of made the decision automatically, intuitively and and incredibly quickly. Let's almost take that um, a step back. So intuitively um, applying that. So if we look at Carl Jung, like he talks about the personality type. So he would talk about, for example, you're either a person of senses or you're a person of intuition on one or the other um, that's where your scale would be, or you are a thinker or a feeler. Now, we also recognize if we not just look at our consumers, because we have to work in a consumer first world, but marketers have a tendency to follow intuition and follow their guts. What is your view on that, um, specifically operating in a system one's world when it comes to marketing? Mm. It all depends how much experience you have because experience builds intuition. And often some of the most insightful people I've, I've ever dealt with have been people who've worked on a brand or with a certain client for years, decades often. Um, and that really gives them an advantage because their system one patterns uh, of intuition guide them to know instantly what's right or wrong, what fits, what doesn't, what's on brand, what's off brand. Whereas if you're a new brand manager, new to the company, new to new to the role, then you don't have you simply don't have that because you just haven't learned. And that in that case, you need to assimilate a lot more data, a lot more information. So your system too will play a very important role in reflecting and processing processing all of the data until 
you start to develop your intuition. Think think about it again, like driving a car. When you're a new brand manager, you've got to learn to drive the car again. But as soon as you master the controls, you can drive fairly automatically um, and trust your gut. It's uh, human beings are brilliant at this. There's, there was a study I, I cite in, in Decoded done in 1910, so over 100 years ago, a German psychologist showed people around the world two shapes, um, two-dimensional shapes, just a black outline. One of them was a very soft, round, cloud-like shape. The other was a very spiky, angular shape. And he said, look at these shapes, and I'm going to tell you the names, and I want you to tell me which, which name fits which shape. One is called Maluba. The other is called Takete. And nearly 100% of people with these spoke Swahili, English, Norwegian, whatever. It didn't matter what language you spoke. You automatically assign Maluba to the soft round shape and Takete yes. to the spiky sharp shape because it just fits, right? We get, we've got this intuitive fit between the sound and the, and the shape. And for marketeers, it, you know, you have that anyway as a human being, but as you, as you understand the brand more and experience it more, you will build your own patterns. Um, and that's when you can look at an ad, look at a design, and, and you just get that visceral response, that gut feeling. And gut feeling is a very good proxy for, for understanding system one, uh, to know whether something feels right or not. So, so let's um, invert this and go to the consumer side. So, for example, the awareness stage, and then you have your consideration stage, decision, and then the actual sale takes place, just to simplify it. Now, if we look at the sales funnel, if I'm buying a car versus buying toothpaste, how is that decision-making process influenced? The answer is that system one and system two play, play different roles. Um, system two will play a greater role depending on a number of conditions. Otherwise, it's quite happy to default and just let system one get on because you know, if it's a toothpaste that we've used before and it and it's only a, a couple of dollars a pack, it's not going to break the bank. It's not going to. It's not no slight on our personality to choose uh, make a mistake in that purchase. Whereas buying a car is a big ticket item and you, it's a high financial risk relative to toothpaste. So the things to look at that govern this, and this works for whether it's a toothpaste or a car or anything, in fact. What's the level of your personal involvement, risk, and motivation to get involved in and interested in this category? So if I have high personal risk, a high financial risk, like buying a car, then it's much more likely that system two will play an integral role in the purchase. So that's one criterion to think about, your level of involvement. The next is the complexity of the purchase and the choice with which you're faced. So if we have many, many more choices, it becomes more effortful for system two to process. So it's more likely to default to system one. And you only need to look at things like online comparison sites for insurance. And you put, you type in your parameters, you give all your data and then the decision engine brings back a hundred results. Right. And it's just too much. And it's like when you get your iPhone uh, iOS update or, or Android software update, you know, do you read all the terms and conditions before you click agree? No, of course not. Easiest way to no, bore us. <laughs> yeah, it's, 
it's I mean no one I've, no one would go through those it's just too effortful so um, complexity of choice is another another criterion the third is time how much time do you have in which to make the decision and often if you're in a in a supermarket you're making a lot of decisions uh, in a short space of time compared to buying a car where you might, you probably have longer to think about it. And the final decision is about task overload. So can you focus on the task in hand or are you distracted? Because contrary to popular belief, you know, humans are not good at multitasking. We divert our attention, we break our flow and our, our stream of thought and it's, it's more effortful then to revert. It's like when you're when you're in a meeting and someone comes into the meeting room, you momentarily lose track of what the speaker is saying because you have to attend. You drop that task to attend to another one, which is this, the other person entering the room. So those those are the four conditions. You've got complexity, involvement, task overload and time. And if you think about those uh, for any category, uh, if it's if it's toothpaste, probably maybe medium to low complexity, um, low involvement. Yeah, probably low ticket item. I'm not that motivated to read the back of pack of all the toothpaste packs. Cognitive overload, maybe, maybe not. And, and time, I might be under time pressure doing my shopping. So there only needs to be one of those conditions present for the, for the purchase decision to be dominated by system one. Conversely, if I'm buying a car, then I will do my research. I'll read the reviews. I'll read the specifications. So my system two plays more of a role. Having said that, it may be playing a role just to justify and rationalize a choice that system one has already made, maybe at the brand level. And I had a classic example with a finance director of a company who said, I was talking about system one and system two, and he said, I, I completely disagree with you. When I bought my last company car, I had a fixed budget and I did lots of research and worked out what model I could afford, what trim and specification I could afford in order to come in within my budget. And, I, and that's system two, right? And I said, mm -hmm. yes, it is. Absolutely is a system two um, mental process. But why were you doing all of that analysis? And he said, um, so I could have a BMW on my drive. Uh, okay, so actually the purchase decision at the brand level had already been made his system one had chosen BMW. Now, what he wasn't saying, because either because he couldn't, because we don't have introspective access to this, or he wouldn't say, was that he wanted to show off to his neighbors because the BMW brand was a symbol for him of prestige and status and superiority. Then what system two was doing was playing a role to rationalize the purchase decision. Interesting. So that's how it works. <laughs> So a question that I've always wanted to ask you in, in, in your opinion, is it possible to switch? Because in your book, you talk about 11 million bytes of information that the brain receives through the sensorial experiences. I think it's 11 million bits per second. I can't remember the exact detail and 40 yeah. bits per second for system two. So your, your, yeah. your absorption of information is slower on system two than system one. Now, yeah. Is it possible for a brand to move from a system two to a system one if they can really do proper brand awareness? Because, you know, brand awareness has, has become like in the boardrooms, is it's not an objective anymore. 
it's not about brand awareness. It's about sell the product, get it to market, yield result, get data. That's where um, everybody is moving towards. Is it possible that if you do your brand awareness properly, that you can actually switch the mind to a system one status? Yeah, absolutely. And and that should be the goal of any brand, because that means you are the default. You, you are the brand of choice in that particular category or for that particular occasion. And your purchase decision becomes a no brainer. Uh, and there's a, a study I cite in, in the book, which proves this, that when people are faced with purchase decisions that include their favorite brand, there is much less neural activity than when they're faced with a purchase decision where their favorite brand is not present. So they're actually having to think and reflect and choose another brand to buy. Whereas if my favorite brand is there, one that served me well in the past and I've had experience with it, it becomes the system one default choice. And that's fantastic because the brain doesn't want to expend a lot of energy in thinking and reflecting. So if I can be bought with the minimum of cognitive effort, happy days. That's that's the place to be. Yeah, Burger King has just changed their logo. Actually, it was the same logo they had in 1994, the new logo. Don't know oh, if you've okay. seen it. No, I haven't. They've changed the logo completely and people have so many mixed emotions about it. Um, mm. Half the people are saying they love it, half are saying they hate it, and then, but they did it in 1994. Why are you hating it? It used to be the logo. Mm. What is your, mm. your point of view of that? Well, maybe some of the people who are being vocal weren't, weren't even alive in 1994. <laughs> so, but that's a fact, right? I mean, we, we just did some distinctive brand asset research um, with a brand where we unusually we found that the um, recognition of the brand was lower amongst people aged 50 plus than it was with a younger audience. And what that signals is that the brand has been inconsistent in its visual identity, because normally what happens is that your brand awareness is correlated very strongly with your age because it's it's all about learning. It's how long you have spent with that brand. So if I grew up with a certain logo in 1994 and it comes back again, it's probably a good thing because it will evoke um, associations of you know younger times, childhood, all the sort of rosy tinted glow of our of our youth. Whereas for younger people. They haven't even seen it before. And if it's suddenly a change to what they're familiar with, then they don't like it because the brain likes familiarity because for something that's familiar is safe. It's secure. And that's why we have what we call the, the status quo bias. We, we like things as they are because that represents surety and security. And it's, it's not a risk. So that, that's, I think, why you're getting that mixed reaction. Very interesting. Another thing I wanted to always ask you was the moment of truth, you know, that it's all about the exchange of value in the decision making process, if I understand from your point of view correctly, but the moment of truth is, is quite important. You can be brilliant and you can make a decision to go and buy that BMW system one and system two applied until you experience the brand. And what if the car breaks every six months and something bad happens? What happens from your expectations as an individual consuming the product? And is there any um, long-term negative effects that you can actually prove behind this? Yeah, most definitely, because the 
the brain has a wonderful feedback loop, which is experience. Because if I buy something and it doesn't do the job for which I've bought it, it disappoints me. It also potentially embarrasses me. And that can be that can even compound the problem. Like, you know, I've been telling my friends I'm going to buy this BMW and then they're laughing at me because it keeps breaking down. That that's awful, uh, of course. And, and that will probably turn you off the brand forever. Uh, it may even make you very vocal and uh, a vocal critic of the brand, you know, giving public negative feedback. So, yes, the experience is critical because it's how we learn. It's about learning for the future. What helps us achieve our goals? What's instrumental in helping us achieve our goals? And if something does and it performs well, great, then we're likely to get a repurchase or, or a recommendation. If it doesn't, then then no, unless there's some fantastic service recovery which can actually have a, a very positive effect. So if I had set my heart on a BMW and it disappointed me, but the dealership pulled out all the stops to fix it, rectify it, and went over and above what my expectations were, that can actually leave me in a, an even more positive place than I was before. And it kind of negates the, the negative experience. But yeah, I mean, having a, a positive feedback loop clearly is what you want. <laughs> But I mean, that's, that shows you you can influence negative and experiences. I think post-COVID world, when we look at the world that we are living in now, many people have ignored customer experiences. They try to do the same thing over and over and over and over. And all of a sudden now consumers are, are, are frugal. They are making decisions um, based on, on experiences. They're becoming in control. We are now in the age of the consumer. And I think it's, it's, it's also just to add some extra layers. Like, for example, in your book, you spoke about the packaging. So you would have different sizes of packaging and how the perceived value of purchasing this package A versus package B, even though package B has got more volume, it's just a way it's, it's perceived in value. Um, and the same happens with things that are invisible now, like, you know, a lot of services, AI, um, education, although you are seeing people face to face, you are using technology to get a lecture from across the globe. Experiences are becoming exceptionally important in the era that we're living in. And I think people are really judging you by the value that you bring to the table. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure. And um there's a lot more transparency now than there ever was. Um, your companies, particularly with two-way communication channels, um, people using uh, different channels of communication rather than you know, in the old in the old days having to write a letter or telephone a company. Um, we expect far more faster response. Um, I've I've got an issue currently with a business. I I messaged them on Boxing Day. And they've just replied. Uh, now, I think that's really, really poor. You know, I got an automated reply saying, we're dealing with unusually heavy uh, oh, workload right that. now. Yeah, fine. Fine. <laughs> okay, great. But, you know, that doesn't help me right now. And they have responded, but they've res they haven't they have actually addressed the issue. So I've had to re-engage. And that now, compared to the response you get as an experience from many other businesses, they kind of set a benchmark, you know, if, if business X can respond to me within 24 hours, why can't you? And I don't care what category you're in. 
that set the bar, that set the benchmark. So yes, I think companies are having to be much more agile now and, mm. and transparent than ever before. Definitely. And, and I think if you also add the layers of packaging, sometimes I will pay a premium price um, if it's environmentally friendly. I will pay more for my food if it's plant-based and it's not harming an animal. Mm. There's, there's now a lot of additional decisions that are being made. And, you know, um, there was this case study by Amazon. Um, I can't remember all of the details, but they had found that when people stand in front of a shelf full of wine, this is something that's at the moment we in South Africa are not allowed to have any alcohol. I don't know if it's the same on your side during lockdown, but we're not allowed to have alcohol. But in those oh, nostalgic <laughs> in those nostalgic <laughs> days when we could have wine or order it online, the people actually get paralyzed by all the choices. So mm. the first decision is red or white. Okay, mm. red. Is it Merlot? Is it Cabernet Sauvignon? What is mm. it? Bordeaux. And then people go through this whole decision-making process. And Amazon actually managed to identify how people become paralyzed with all the choices that they managed to put it together in three clicks because they realized that people were buying for three reasons. The first one is you and your your partner wants to have a, a glass of wine, so you're going to buy yourself a, a cheapish bottle of wine to share in the night. Um, then you have a guest over, and then you need to flash a bit. So you'll buy a bottle of wine maybe for a hundred pounds, and then mm -hmm. you go into somebody's wedding, or you want to give somebody a special gift. Um, they've graduated, or something like that, and it's in their year, and they can reserve it and keep it for a long time. And you spend maybe a thousand pounds on it, and that is, you know, they call them wine buffs, and this is where they categorize people, and based on that, they limited the amount of choice that you had to face. And I think that's a very clever way for a brand to eliminate that. Colgate, I think Simon Sinek, but it might be a myth, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Simon Sinek, many, many years ago in his book, Start With Why, he was talking about the Colgate anxiety syndrome, I think it was called, where every time when Unilever, or not, I don't know, Colgate, Palm Olive, or whoever the FMCG company is, every time when their prices um, started declining, or not prices, their sales started declining, they would introduce a new product and then it spiked. And then they would do all the awareness and they would do all of that. And eventually there were like 50 or over 34, I think. It's a long time since I've read it. Over 34 different Colgate toothpastes. And people didn't know which one to choose that they actually created a tool at the point of sale for you to go through the tool to, to decide which is the best toothpaste. And people don't have time to, to, to make big decisions about toothpaste and they go for a different brand. And I think this is like so important in the age, as you say, the agility economy, people's lives are busy. We sit in, I call us the zombies of the apocalypse. We are sitting in Zoom meetings from like eight in the morning till six at night, then we need to get the job done. We don't have time to make big decisions all the time. Yeah. No, that's right. And I, it was always like this, but it's been compounded now probably by the choice that we can uh, get on the Internet. And yes, this choice paralysis is very interesting. And, and there was a famous study with different varieties of jam uh, in a supermarket that showed the same thing, um, that actually they sold more when there were only six varieties compared to when there were 24 varieties. Having said that, if you are a connoisseur of jam, you might drive 50 miles to go to a store called World of Jam, you know, which sells 300 varieties. It, it, 
it, there is a general rule that's applicable to, to all of us, but there are exceptions, of course. Um, you know, if I'm a wine buff, I'm going to be personally much more interested in the varieties and um, the, the origins, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe a wider choice is, is better there. In fact, a wine buff will probably expect wider choice and mm. be disappointed with a, with a narrower choice. But for day-to-day -day stuff, yeah, make it easy. That's, that's the whole mantra for the brain is just make it easy, make it brain-friendly. I love that brain friendly because it's all about being friction warriors, removing friction out of people's lives, making their lives as easy as possible um, so they can consume your product. You have an interesting theory on price and how you price products. I've worked with quite a lot of luxury brands. They hate giving discounts or doing anything like that because in their minds, um, it takes value away from the product and discounts is a no-no. And then you've got other people that play the price war. What's your view on that? Well, price itself is a signal. Uh, it's a signal of quality. We kind of learn the heuristic that you get what you pay for and that quality has a price. Um, so you wouldn't expect, you know, to if someone offered you a Louis Vuitton handbag for $10, your immediate thought is either it's stolen or it's fake because that just doesn't fit, right? So there is a level of price that is commensurate with luxury brand uh, rewards but it is also about the perception of price you know you can make price appear more or less expensive depending on the context in which it appears even how you depict the price you know we, we did a study where we showed prices that were luxury brands so there was a, a embossed effect starburst effect um, nice fancy colors versus prices that you might see in a discount supermarket. The price was exactly the same, but people rated them as more or less expensive than each other, which was kind of weird because they were objectively the same, but it's about the perception of price. So prices is a signal itself of, of reward, but it does also represent pain in the brain. So when I have to part with something that I value highly, which is money, it actually triggers the pain center in the, in the brain. And wow. yeah, that's the flip side of reward because reward is what's represented by the brand or products or service that you're purchasing. But then there's the money and the time and the effort involved in, in acquiring that, uh, that reward or that brand. So um, yeah, minimizing, minimizing the pain if you can in a way, whilst at the same time pulling the lever of increasing the perceived reward is really the way to, to make value work uh, yeah. for you. Very interesting. Another thing I just want to touch on on your book, uh, in your book, you talk about the action codes and sensory codes, recoding from signals to concepts. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, it's um, it, it's again, it's based on human learning. So we learn that X equals Y. That certain things have uh, imbued meanings. So, for example, um, a couple of interesting studies. One of one of which was about people who were um, given cold drinks versus hot drinks when they were in a social situation and how the physical temperature of the drink affects how comforted we feel, which makes sense, right? You know, we wrap our hands around a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or a mug of soup or something. And it's immediately comforting because we have learned from right after we're born that warmth equates to security and comfort when we're placed on our, our parents' breast. It's it's the most comforting place you can you can be. 
so that concept of warm temperature and comfort uh, and security is is still held throughout our lives the other is the meaning that other things have so you know if you're a male in an office and you learn that it's a female colleague's birthday and you give her a bunch of sunflowers or a bunch of red roses they would be received very differently but you know at one level they're they're all flowers right so why is there a difference but of course at another level we've learned cultural associations that red roses have connotations of romance and mm. uh, and love whereas sunflowers probably happiness you know it's nice bright sunshiny stuff so that's how we recode from a from a signal to to a concept and it it's the way that creatives and agencies work they are geniuses at doing this at, uh, at using uh, shortcuts using codes without having to write everything out in, in long form with lots of text and lots of copy they can use a symbol or a photo or a color or a shape to connote and convey exactly that desired meaning well it was an absolute pleasure um chatting to you i'm so glad that i reached out to you and that i've managed to actually discuss this with you because this as i said is my bible next to me um, I re refer to it quite often, um, especially when there's some decisions I need to debate in the boardroom. But also just thank you very much for your time. And what I also just the last question I'm going to ask you before we sign out is what is the book that you're currently reading? Uh, um, well, I'm, I'm actually reading one. It's not behavioral science at all. It's by, <laughs> um, it's by a UK journalist and tv um presenter called piers morgan i don't know if oh i know there. him we all know right, him okay. <laughs> he's, he's written a book called wake up which is him railing against uh, woke culture and cancel culture and uh, what he sees as just pure nonsense going on in the world so it's highly provocative it's highly amusing uh, guaranteed to get a response amongst anyone who reads it so that's, that's what i'm reading right now <laughs> He knows how to provoke. I saw his tweet to Trump. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, it's interesting because he's been friends with Trump for a long time, but he's also, he's also his fiercest critic. So um, it's quite a nice place to be. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. That guy, Trump. Ha <laughs> let's not go there. You have to go. Mm. I have to go. It has, it has been awesome. And let's stay in touch Thank afterwards. You. And we might bring a panel together at some point in time. It might be an interesting yeah. local emails. All right. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com, where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Ouya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences, B2B, B2C and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences, mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.